that was our drummer today that was just on film, and uh, fortunately, he's much better at drums than he is at construction workforce. Um, it's so good to have you guys here today. Um, ponder this with me. Some high-impact gifts cost a lot of the giver. Some very high-impact gifts cost a whole lot of the giver. Five years ago, Marie and I had our 35th wedding anniversary, and our kids came to us and said, we, we'd like to pay for you to relive your entire eight-day honeymoon. So uh, 35 years previous to that, we had spent eight days going through Arkansas, Hot Springs and Eureka Springs and the Ozark Mountains and all. So they, they said, we'll pay the entire thing all over again. When Marie heard this, her first response was, wow, what generosity. And then a minute later, it was, wow, I wish we'd gone to Hawaii 35 years ago rather than Arkansas. <laughs> no offense against Arkansas. We, had, we did the eight days and had a, a, a beautiful time and had lifetime memories uh, from the trip. Great trip, but it cost them a lot. But there's some high-impact gifts that don't cost much at all from the giver. I entered A&M. I was on campus my first day. I met a fellow freshman named Bob Bethencourt. I was going to study petroleum engineering. I, had, I knew no one in the industry at all. Bob's dad had been in it a lifetime, a career. Bob had an older brother there at A&M studying it. So Bob asked me, do you have one of the petroleum engineering scholarships? I had never heard of it. He said, well, most of us back in the spring of our high school senior year, we got scholarships. And I said, you're kidding me. I never heard of it. And he said, maybe there's money left over. So I checked with the department, and sure enough, there was some money left, and I got this scholarship that would run the entire four years. It paid 30 to 40% of my entire college cost. It didn't cost Bob Bentoncourt hardly a thing. He didn't have to pay the money for it. All he had to do, all it cost him was just telling me about what he had found and discovered. And then he would ask me if I, had, if I was going to interview for the summer jobs coming up, and we hadn't even started classes yet. And he said, there are these major oil companies that come in now. They come in the first month, and they're hiring even freshmen for the coming summer. And so I, I interviewed and was able to get a job that paid four times what I could earn back home and gave me exposure to the, to the oil business. And, and it cost Bob so little he didn't have to create the job or support the job or supervise me. He just told me that's all it cost him. I'll give you one more. My, my brother had um, become acquainted with a really, really special young lady named Marianic. And he introduced me to her, which now we're 40 years into marriage. And I have 42 years since the introduction. And I continue to tell him I can never repay you. All he did was make an introduction. First, he recognized how special she was. But all it cost was the introduction. And truly, truly, I, I could never repay him for the impact of that gift upon my life. There's a historical event recorded in 2 Kings, beginning in chapter 6, verse 24. runs through chapter 7, verse 20. And it's about this great gift given, but it costs the giver very little. I go back to it from time to time. I find it at times compelling. I find it at times convicting. I find it at times inspiring. And I'm not sure where it may land upon you today, but I want to tell you about this event and then see how it might speak to us. The setting was around 850 B.C. This was in the Middle East in the area of Israel. By that time, Israel had had, had a civil war in some previous years, and they had divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom called Israel, a southern kingdom called Judah. This was in the northern kingdom. In fact, this was at the capital of the northern kingdom at Samaria. And at this given time, 
a king of Aram Damascus, this big kingdom, powerful kingdom to the north. His name was Ben-Hadad, had come down to attack the northern kingdom, which was Israel. And his armies had surrounded Samaria, the capital, and put them under siege. This was a typical military move at the time. And so the people in the city then had to live off of the existing food supply, the existing water supply. And by this time, the army had surrounded them for a long, long time. And they were beyond the point of starving to death. They had reached the desperation of cannibalism. Marie made me promise to tell you no more details, but the details are in Scripture of how bad it was. On a given day, the prophet Elisha says to the king, he says, tomorrow there's going to be more food for us to feast upon than we've ever seen. And the king's response was, and, and one of the king's representatives' response was, even if God opened the windows of heaven, there's no way. There's no way that could happen tomorrow. We're dying. We're in deep desperation. There were four men with leprosy that knew nothing of the prophecy. If they had, they wouldn't have done what they were about to do. But these four men with leprosy began to talk among themselves, and they said, why do we just wait here to die? Why don't we go across to the enemy lines and maybe they'll have mercy on us and let us live? If they kill us, we're going to die anyway. Why don't we do it? And so they trek off, and I'll pick up where Scripture picks up in chapter 7, verses 5 to 7. It says, so at twilight they set out for the camp of the Armenians. But when they came to the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Armenian army to hear the clatter of speeding chariots and the galloping of horses and the sounds of a great army approaching. The king of Israel has hired the Hittites and Egyptians to attack us, they cried to one another. So they panicked and ran into the night, abandoned their tents, horses, donkeys, and everything else and fled for their lives. So these four men, they walk into the camp, and there's no one there. They go into the first tent, and it's stocked with food and wine. So they begin to gorge themselves with food and wine, and they get a little way into the food supply there, and they think, well, let's check out another tent. And they find the same thing in another tent, and in a third and a fourth. And somewhere along the way, they realize, hey, there's not just food and wine. There's gold, and there's silver, and there's all kinds. There's piles of clothing. And so they, they were feasting to the bursting point, and they were taking gold and silver and clothes out and hiding it and stockpiling it. We don't know how long this went on, but in chapter 7, verse 9, it says this very profoundly. It says, finally, they said to each other, this is not right. This is a day of good news, and we aren't sharing it with anyone. And so they, they're thinking back, and just a short walk away, there's the walled city of Samaria where they had family and friends and loved ones and neighbors, and they're still starving. And they decide to pay the very, very small price of just walking back to the city gates and hollering over the wall, let us in, and saying there's food for the taking, more than we could eat in a lifetime for all of us. There's more gold than we could spend in a lifetime, more silver, more clothes we could ever wear. It's all there for the taking. It's so stunning that the king said it's a trap. The Armenians have just done this to trap us. They've just pulled back a little distance. We'll go out there and they'll come slaughter us. So he sends a small scouting party out and they actually, they, they follow the trail of the Armenian army running, losing sandals and clothes. And along the way, they follow them 10, 12 miles to the Jordan River where they, the trail disappears into the sunset, never to be seen again. 
They come back and report that, and the city gates are open, and the people flood out. And they begin to have a feast of all feasts. They, they became rich and wealthy. How much did it cost the ones who came back to tell them? So very little because God had already done the work, hadn't he? God had already blown the enemy away off, off the map as far as they were concerned. He'd already done the work. And all they did was simply tell others about the treasure that they had found. <laughs> Every time I read this story, I come back to it more often than I do a lot of passages. I think of five encounters that Marie and I had and five invitations that came from those five encounters. Most of the encounters happened back to back to back, so this would be a quick story to tell you. But the very first encounter, we were in a new city. We were going to, we're in the process of building a new house. And the very first encounter, Marie's at this store to look at buying some product for the new house. And Joy Davis owns the business, and Marie meets Joy Davis. And in the, the brief meeting, Joy Davis, who's the first encounter, invites Marie to her church. Marie comes home to tell me this. We find the church, it's an hour round trip from our house. And I tell her, there's no way, there's no church worth that. <laughs> no way we're going to do that. Uh, but Marie wins. Uh, she usually wins. And so to my resistance, we, we, we accept the invitation and we show up at the church. At which point there's a second encounter. These are all strangers to us. All strangers. We meet a man named David Bedford and on the spot he, in, he invites us to lunch. To my resistance, again, Marie wins. We end up at their house for lunch within a week at their house end. At the, so that was the second counter, next invitation that had been lunch, a meal with them. At the lunch, David's son, Alvin, who was our age, was there. So we encounter Alvin, and Alvin invites us to their small group. I don't remember if I resisted that or not or if I just gave up and said whatever. But we end up at the small group. There's a fourth encounter. We, we meet the small group leader named Dennis Townsend. And we see something different in him and most in the small group, and Pretty quickly, he invites us to something. He invites us to look closely at Jesus and Jesus' claim on our lives. So four encounters, four strangers, four invitations. And there was something compelling about him and the others that caused us to stay. And we actually began to encounter Jesus with them through Scripture and through their lives. We were looking at Scripture together, and somehow it was coming to life, and we were encountering Christ in that. And very much, and this was very important to us, we began to encounter Jesus in their lives. They knew him so well. They followed him with such abandon. They talked with him. They seemed to be hearing from him that somehow we began to encounter Jesus in their very lives. And this wasn't a quick process, but after two years' time of the encounter, at which time early on, Jesus made an invitation to us which is follow me. And he didn't mean for a day or for a moment or when it's comfortable or when you feel like it. We understood his invitation was from this day forward, make me the leader of your life. Follow me with abandon. And for two years, we examined that invitation. And within one week of each other then, after two years' time, both of us said, yes, we'll follow you. Both of us abandoned our lives to him. And this is, this is the game that happened. We understood every single sin was forgiven. We felt the wall between us and God blown away. 
that we, we understood and we began to feel we were these much-loved son and daughter of God. We began to experience what Scripture said about this relationship with God would become so close, so intimate, that the best description is that Jesus would take up residence in your heart. He would, he would enter into the core of your being. We began to experience that. And Scripture would say the Holy Spirit of God will take up residence in you and guide you and empower you in all these things. And we began to experience that as well. And all of this time, we realized our lives were changing bit by bit, day by day. And the whole time, we understood our eternal address had been changed from disaster, endless disaster, and now red heaven. Indescribable gift. Words don't do it justice beyond comprehension gift. And we then realized that these five people we had encountered, the first four people we had encountered, they themselves had encountered the fifth one, Jesus, at some point. And they'd come to a point of saying to him, I will follow you, give you leadership. And they'd begun to experience the treasure that we had begun to, all that I described. They had experienced that. And somewhere along the way, and the amount of time varied between each of the four of those. Somewhere along the way, as they were basking in this new life, they said what four lepers had said nearly 3,000 years ago. They said, this isn't right. This is a day of good news, and we're not telling anyone about it. Dennis Townsend, I think it took him about two hours. If A few of you have met the man, um, but it, I think in about two hours... As he was basking in this new life, he thought, i got to go tell somebody. Some of the others took a lot longer. I think some took decades. But somewhere along the way, the four of them, they were the strangers we encountered, each of them giving an, an invitation. At some point, they had said, this isn't right. <laughs> I, I have experienced stunning good news, and I'm not telling anyone about it. And each of them, what did it cost? Joy Davis, the store owner, she had to simply mouth an invitation, and at worst, she might have offended Marie, and Marie may have not have bought her product. That's at worst. David Bedford, who invited us to a meal, they bought some groceries. His, I don't want to minimize this, but his wife cooked them, and in the big scheme of things, what did it cost them? His son, who we encountered at the meal, all he said was just, would you come visit our small group? They had space. What did it cost him? Dennis Townsend, it cost him a little bit more, candidly. He, he spent an inordinate, inordinate amount of time and passion, energy, and prayer trying to make that group alive. He spent time with Marie and me. He let us ask questions. He let us explore. He, he cost him a little bit more. But in the big scheme of things, it cost him almost nothing. And the gain we got was beyond description. This is really important to grasp. First, I'll give you this. Def the definition of the term evangelism, it's a, from a Greek term that simply means to share good news. That's all it is. Nothing fancier than that. Nothing more theological than that. It just means to share good news. Here's the significant point is, is that evangelism cost us so little because it cost Jesus so much. Evangelism cost us so little because it cost Jesus so much. Last week, I gave a definition of passion. I said it's to care enough 
to be willing to suffer, to care enough to be willing to suffer. And Jesus has this bottomless, endless passion, this willingness to suffer for one more person to come to know him, the measure of which was the death on the cross and taking the sins of the world upon himself. This, this deep, deep willingness to suffer to that degree for one more person, this, this beyond description passion that he's had. And he calls us to share, at least in some measure, in that same passion. He calls us to care enough to, to at least be willing to suffer a little bit. And I, I said this last week. It's really important to say again. When you love someone, what matters to them will begin to matter to you. When you love someone, what matters to them will begin to matter to you. And so I realize. If, if I have gotten to a point I don't care that much about someone else meeting Jesus, I realize that my, my love for him has just drifted so far south. I know I need to lean into him. I need to see his love all over again. And as I fall in love with him all over again, what matters to him will begin to matter to me. It's no surprise that his parting words, his parting command before he ascended to heaven to his followers would be these words, Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Begins with saying, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. To make a disciple means simply this. To help someone encounter Jesus, hear his invitation to them, his call in their life to follow him, and help them come to a point of following, of saying yes. That's where the discipleship begins. That's the threshold. That's what it means to make a disciple. One is not a disciple of Jesus until they've decided to follow him. Until they've surrendered leadership of their life. And then the baptism is a celebration of that. So his, his final parting words, his command to all of us Christ followers, to us was, was have enough passion, care enough to be willing to suffer some degree, pay some price to help the people around you that don't know me encounter me. I, I'm not offended by that command. I'm not offended by that command. What else would we expect? (laughs) If he loved you and me that much, why would we think he would love the next person less? If you and I have the treasure of treasures, why would we think that he wouldn't just assume we would get to a point of being able to pay at least a small price for someone else to gain the benefit of the full price he's already paid. Let me put this in in context of the series that we're in. The series is Blueprint, as most of you know. Um, The the acronym of Blueprint is VIPs, VIPS. We're talking about how God has designed us. The blueprint in which we would live is the one in which we would experience the life he made us for. And so we've talked about several pieces of this, and we talked about his blueprint would be that we would have this vibrant, 
community life. And part of that is what we're doing right now. It would, it would be alive in our lives and frequent in lives. Part of that vibrant community life would be small groups as well. And, and so part of what he's saying is if you really want to live out the way you were made to live, then that's part of it. That, that's the V of the VIPs. The I is this intimate devotion life we've talked about. It means this, this connection with God that is fueled through prayer with him. And fueled through studying scripture where he speaks to us. And part of the deal is he's saying, hey, if you want to really live out the way you were made to live, then this is going to be crucial to it. Live out this way. The P part is this passionate serving life. And I began to teach last week about it. I taught about how we live out a life. We serve in a way that helps others grow. And we serve in, in a wheelhouse in our sweet spot the way he made us. But clearly another piece of it is to share this good news. Is this evangelism piece of it. It's, it's part of this passionate serving life. And then next week we'll talk about the one final piece is this, these summit experiences. And so every, every component, if your life is to run fully alive, every component has to be there. It would be, an analogy would be an analogy of your house. If you have the perfect blueprint for your house, it would give you everything that you really need. But you decide not to build the bathroom part, the blueprint, you're going to suffer a little bit. It won't be quite where you want to live. If you leave the kitchen out, I don't know about you, but I'm going to suffer a whole lot if you leave the kitchen out. It won't be the kind of house you, you really dreamed of, will it? Or, or if the bedroom's left out, you need a place to sleep, it won't be the house that you really want to live in, will it? Or maybe, maybe even, maybe a necessity is a living room because you want to be solo your whole life there. You want to have family or friends. Maybe, maybe you want a living room and it'd be like having this blueprint that has it all there, but leaving a crucial room out of it. I sat down with a man who was a pretty good friend of mine, was at the harbor and uh, followed Jesus for a long time. And he wanted to meet because he said it seemed that his faith had gone flat. And I didn't have all these words as they are right now, but, but I, I kind of walked him through this grid and I said, well, tell me what's, I know you're at church on Sunday because we were a small church and I could see him. And I said, is, like, is Sunday morning alive and, or is it just this blah? And he said, no, it's, it's live. I you know, connect with God there. I said, that's good. And what about small groups, which I knew he was in? And he said, no, it's, it, man, we're talking about Christ and growing in Christ. Yeah, that's good. And I said, what about your prayer life with God? And he said, yeah, it's, it's consistent. I feel like I'm connecting. And what about studying scripture? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing that. And God's speaking to me. And what about serving? And yeah, I'm in this role serving. It's good. And I said, I sat there, I said, what, well, are you spending any time, any effort to help someone that doesn't know Jesus know him? He said, no, I'm not doing that. I lit up. <laughs> I thought he would too. And I said, I think that might be it. But he didn't light up. And I said, I, I think that may be the one thing that's missing. And he said, no, 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 I don't even know anybody. And Everyone I know is at church. I said, well, I, I know you work for a company. Or does everyone there know Jesus? He said, no, no, a bunch of them don't. I said, would you be willing to like, go public that you know Jesus? And, <laughs> and he said, no, no, there's no way I'll ever do that. And so I, I took a step back and, and I said, then would you just be willing to at some point at least invite one of them to church? No, no, that's just crossing the line. And my last chance was, then would you just be willing to pray for someone? Said, that's not who I am. 
That's just not who I am. I had nothing left. And within a few weeks or months, he left the church to try to find another church that could reignite the passion in his life and maybe find a church that wouldn't make him uncomfortable by one of the most prominent commands of Jesus. Hmm. Contrast that. My story is going to parallel a lot of you in this. When I met Christ and was blown away by the value of that treasure, I was aware of people God had used, these four people in the process of encounters and how he'd used them. And, but I, I wondered if I, I would ever have a part in that, someone's life. And I wasn't very good at helping people meet. I knew that. I'm still not very good at helping people meet Jesus. I'm really not. But I thought, surely before I die, I get to play some role in this. Because I could only imagine the sense of a purpose if that could happen. But again, I'm really not very good at this. But there was a guy that worked for me named Brent Hauser. And I was beginning to make it a little bit known I was following Jesus. And one day I invited him to church. And he came and he met a bunch of sold-out followers of Jesus. And in the process of coming to church, Brent Hauser trusted Christ. And I was aware I made the invitation. There were many other people that played a much bigger part that God used, but I made the invitation that got him to church and God used that. And and I can't tell you the, the thrill of that. A lot of you know the thrill of that. And sometimes it doesn't just end it. Like you breathe your last and and there was only one. I, I thought about Dennis Townsend, the guy that led the small group that so Christ so clearly lived in him. When at the harbor, a few years back when we realized that we had then had over a thousand people that had trusted Christ. I thought back to Joy Davis and David Bedford and Alvin Bedford and Dennis Townsend and I, I got a made a like a plaque and put it on an easel and I sent it to Dennis Townsend. Got a picture of it. The plaque says, "It takes only a solitary light to guide a thousand ships in through the night." And I wrote to Dennis and I said, "Of course, the light is Jesus. He is the light of the world. But but His light shines so profoundly through you." that Marie and I saw Jesus in you. We trusted Jesus. And now we got to be part of this church, and there are a bunch of people here that are on fire for Christ, and that now there are over 1,000 people that have trusted Jesus. And Dennis, it goes back to you. <laughs> it goes back to you leading that small group on fire for Christ and the ripple effect. He, was, he had no idea. He, he, he was basking, thanking God, saying, is there a better life than that? Is there anything better than that? Nearly 3,000 years ago, some men had gotten a treasure, but they came to a point of saying, this is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're not sharing it with anyone. The challenge Christ gives us this day is to embrace this mindset This is a day of good news. I will share it with someone. This is a day of good news. I will share it with someone. I have to be candid in a room this size. 
Some of you will probably have to pay a much higher price than the illustrations I've given you. Some of you will probably pay the price of risking your reputation. Some of you may pay the price of your career. Some may pay the price of your entire financial treasure. I I don't know who that may be, but in a room this size, I suspect that's true. So I wouldn't begin, I wouldn't pretend to come to any of you and say, give up your treasure, give up your job, all that. But I would say this to all of you that know Jesus. I think there are two things, like two very small investments that he would have us make. One is this, is simply pray. Pray for those around you who are not yet followers of Jesus. Pray for them. And the challenge I would give you is find some way of flagging yourself the next eight weeks. Just eight weeks. Make it the norm. Think of the people in your orbit that don't yet know Jesus. Just pray for them. Any amount of detail that seems to be fruitful in prayer, but simply pray for them that they might come to a point of knowing Jesus. And then one more thing I would say is do what those four strangers we encountered did. Invite. Invite to church. Invite to lunch. Invite to small group. Invite to explore Jesus. Very, very specifically because this is the season we're in, I I want to invite you to, I want to tell you, encourage you, challenge you to invite people to to four specific things. One is this, is the Christmas series that starts December 3rd through the 24th. Say to a friend, hey, we got, my church has got, the whole month of December is focused on, on Christmas. I'm confident it's going to be inspiring and difference making. Would you come with me? December 3rd through the 24th. Second invite, Christmas Eve, it's a slam dunk. Most anyone that you invite, if they're already going someplace, most anyone you invite will come, say yes, invite Christmas Eve. On the hills of Christmas Eve, January 20th, I'm sorry, January 7th is the harbor's 20th anniversary as a church. There'll be this blowout celebration, not, not about us, but about what God's done over 20 years' time. It's going to be a, a Huge opportunity to invite someone that doesn't know Jesus to see what Jesus has done. Invite them for that celebration then. And then the Sunday following that, January 14th, Lee Strobel, author of The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, Lee Strobel of the movie fame of The Case for Christ, is going to be here. He's going to teach us that Sunday morning. Both services that Sunday morning. What he's going to teach is he's going to teach about how he was one who didn't believe in Jesus He's going to tell us what led him to the point of following Jesus. It's going to be a huge time to invite friends. Pray and invite. And and how much will that cost you? (laughs) Like, like, how much life will it suck out of you? How much will you, if you do it, pray and invite, how much will you wake up one morning and think, oh, man, I can hardly live what it cost me? Simply pray and invite. This is a day of good news. I will tell someone. This is a day of good news. I will tell someone. Will you do these things? <laughs> are, are you still blown away at Christ followers? Christ followers. Are you still blown away by the treasure you found enough? That you'd be willing to suffer? <laughs> Pay a price? that someone else might find him too? Even if the price is small, God can use it. Most of us, there were some small prices some people paid, and that's what got us to Jesus. Would you be willing to join me eight weeks? Pray and invite.
(laughs) Simply pray and invite and watch God work. Father in heaven, first, Father, thank you for Jesus doing (laughs) the heavy lifting, paying the ultimate price. Thank you for that. Thank you for all of us here that have trusted him for the life he's given us, the eternity he's given us. May we be freshly blown away by that. Thank you that you invite us into the story. You invite us to play a role, one that costs very little compared to Jesus, yet it's a crucial role in the life of probably not just one, but probably many in our lifetime. Thank you you call us into that. Help us see that. Help us grasp that. Help us be willing to pay the price. Help us not diminish it when the price seems so small. Help us realize that maybe that one small price we pay that's a crucial part of the chain that changes everything for our life. For which we could look back and say, (laughs) I got to play this little part. I got to play this little part. Father, may we embrace that. May we embrace it. For those here that don't know Jesus, Father, even now, even now, if they're far enough down the road, they could say, I will follow you, I will trust you, I will surrender to you. If they're not that far down the road, Father, may they decide that they will look carefully at Jesus and his claim on their lives. I pray this with great hope and anticipation in Jesus' name. Amen.